Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Chris Evans here with a special edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast with Sky from Virgin Radio today with Michael Pollan. For more than 30 years, Michael has been writing books and articles about places where the human and natural worlds intersect on our plates, in our farms, via our plants and our flowers and our gardens and in our minds. His brand new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, Opium, Caffeine and Mescaline is published on Thursday the 7th of July. I read it in hardback when it first came out. I've read the paperback version again it is off the scale amazing whether it's popping poppy seeds in your teapot for an alternative brew or not getting arrested for what you might be innocently growing in your window box this psychonaut super gardener is here to guide us through the psychedelic spider's web of uppers downers and outers pollen by name Pollen by nature. It's Michael Pollen. Good morning, Michael. <laughs> morning, Chris. How, How are, are you? you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm thrilled to talk to you. I'm thrilled that you came in in person. I thought you were going to zoom us, but this is here. I am. This yeah. is madness, man. This is massive. This is your mind on plants. It's in paperback. It's out next week. It's a beach read for the summer. Opium, caffeine, mescaline from Michael Pollen. Engrossing, eye-opening, mind-altering. It's a trip. Great book, Michael. Not your first, obviously, for people who know you. Why did you decide on the three um, tenets of opium, caffeine and mescaline for this particular tome? Well, the idea was I wanted to really look at our relationship to these mind-changing substances. Uh, You know, we've had this conversation around drugs and all illicit drugs are evil and... um, But the drug war is beginning to fade, and it's time to take another look. All of us. I see you're about to lift a cup of coffee to your mouth. Tea. Tea, okay. But but I have coffee to all of us. I have coffee, too. So 90% of us are involved with a psychoactive drug every day. Uh, I I am addicted to coffee and tea. And um, so I wanted to kind of recontextualize drugs for people. And uh, I have been, you know personally exploring a whole range of psychoactives, I've always been intrigued by the fact that humans like to change consciousness. Um, this is as, as a deep an urge as any we have, but it's a really weird one because it doesn't, unlike sex and eating, it doesn't obviously seem like something good for the species but it must be or the drug takers would have been edited out of evolution yeah now there are so many stories around um uh, you know the the sort of three main arcs of the book and it's just a great read it's the second time i read it because i read it in, when it was in hardback um so let's go through them shall we let's let's do five minutes on caffeine five minutes on opium and then can we do 10 minutes on mescaline i think that's how we should yeah because i think that sort good. of reflects the book you know what i mean that kind of thing so um caffeine you're a caffeine addict as many of us are so the best way for you uh, and us to experience the effects of caffeine is to stop taking it yeah so i went on a caffeine fast for three months and i urge people to try it it's really hard it was one of the hardest things i've ever done Um, but it immediately made it absolutely clear to me that at this point in my life normal consciousness is caffeinated consciousness and consciousness without caffeine was slower, duller, 
Uh, I was less effective at work. I had much less focus. My ego was kind of mushy. Um, <laughs> and I had no idea what role caffeine was playing. And, you know, when caffeine was discovered in the West, it comes to, it comes to London in the 1640s, along with uh, a caffeine in both coffee, tea, and chocolate. They all show up in the same decade. And it changed the course of English history. Um, it displaced alcohol, not completely, obviously, but to some extent, and allowed um, people in the West to work harder, work longer, work more efficiently, uh, and really helps lead to the Industrial Revolution and the Age of Reason, because it was a new way of thinking. And so I don't have anything against coffee. The only reason I got off it was to see how dependent I was and, and what life with, without it was. I'm now back on it very happily. <laughs> I have one cup a day. And, uh, you know, this is a drug, I think, that oh. the benefits outweigh the, the, um, the deficits. Uh, it does more for us than it takes well, away. Well, just tell us about that. Tell us to, what you have to substantiate that. Sure. So a lot of medical research has been done trying to figure out what's wrong with caffeine. Uh, because something's so good, there must be something bad about yeah. it, right? And in fact, they have not found it. The uh, In general, caffeine is protective against several different cancers. It's protective against Parkinson's disease. Um, it is, on balance, better for you than not. The, the one negative about caffeine is if you have it too late in the day, it will mess with your sleep. And sleep is really important to your health. So I, I knock off by noon. I don't have any caffeine afternoon. Yeah, because you talk about the fact that some sleep gurus and some of the best, Matthew Walker, as yeah. well, um, a lot of them don't drink any caffeine, do they? I was really struck by the fact that anyone who studies sleep has nothing just to do with doesn't, caffeine. Just doesn't anyway. Yeah, and that was the one good thing about, well, there were a couple of good things, but one, the one good thing about my caffeine fast, I slept like a teenager. Did I you mean, honestly? Uh, it was fantastic. I've got to try it then. <laughs> I do love a coffee. I'm quite new to coffee. I know the last four or five years, really. I don't know why I'm late to the party. But of course, we caffeinate our children, don't we? Yeah, that's the kind of weird thing. This is a psychoactive we give to our kids in the form of caffeinated sodas. Most uh, sodas are caffeinated, and, um, and we think nothing of it. It's a very strange thing, but we're basically uh, getting them used to caffeine at a very young age. And what about this thing about the fact that, you know, if you've been off it a while like you were, um, then you get back on it. And you say, you say don't you, that um, it was as psychedelic as anything used you've ever experienced and you've experienced quite a lot i have so the first cup after three months was fantastic <laughs> and you know that's reason enough to get off even just for a week or two <laughs> just give it a go because you have no idea what a what a powerful drug it is it was euphoric yeah. and i felt this sense of power and uh this desire to get to work mm. um in fact, I sat down at my computer and I killed like a hundred listservs that I was, all the Honestly. junk email. I just went through and knocked it all off. I organized my closet. It was a great day. Now, do you think that's the caffeine or do you think that's your biochemistry because the anticipation of the caffeine? Because the two can go hand in hand, can't they? Yeah, there's definitely was part of it. But a drug you're dependent on, when you take it every day, it's basically restoring you to the status quo. And the homeostasis. Yes, yeah. exactly. And whereas if you haven't had it for a while, the full power is evident. And it's it was a wonderful <laughs> experience, uh, I have to say. It was right up there with the best drug experiences I've had. Right, let's, let's talk about those. And again, so we're not going to glorify them, um, but you talk of them scientifically, um, very sensibly, analytically, um, and also very... Um, 
very freely. So what had you tried up until writing this book? Well, my last book um, called How to Change Your Mind was an exploration of psychedelics. And I was taking a look at this renaissance of research into psychedelic compounds like psilocybin, LSD, to treat mental illness. Um, There's a lot of really encouraging research going on, some of it right here in London, uh, quite a bit of it in the United States, of uh, administering a psychedelic experience of four to six hours guided. This is not using psychedelics, uh, you know, recreationally. This is in a very controlled university setting. And they've had remarkable results uh, with treating depression, uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. They're using it now for eating disorders, anxiety. PTSD. And PTSD, yes. Uh, That's a different substance. MDMA or ecstasy is being used to treat PTSD. And in about Two-thirds of the cases, people lose the diagnosis. I mean, it actually cures them. So this is quite remarkable, and it foretells, I think, a revolution in mental health care. And uh, so I wrote a book about that. But as part of that, telling that story, I wanted to experience it myself because it was so implausible to me that a single psychedelic experience could remove someone's fear of death or lift their depression after 30 years in some cases. So I arranged to have a couple guided psychedelic experiences. I had not used them at the age-appropriate period of life. Uh, I was too afraid of psychedelics when I was in my 20s or in college. And I had some amazing experiences. Some of them were terrifying and some of them were euphoric. And many of them taught me important things about my life that I didn't know. Can we stick with amazing and euphoric? Give us an example of each, please. Yeah. uh, On um, psilocybin, uh, I had a a very powerful experience uh, in which... I mean, it was mixed. It's very long, right? So there'll be scary episodes. I, for, for a couple hours, I felt like I was trapped in a video game, and it was just, like, awful. And um, it had something to do with the music that the guide was playing. It's important to understand when you have one of these guided trips, you're wearing a blindfold, and you're listening to music. There's a playlist. And, and the music has a very powerful effect on the experience because um, all your senses get kind of crosswired, so you can see music or taste it. I mean, it's, it's called synesthesia, which is kind of remarkable. Anyway, after this negative period, I had her change the music, and she put on some Bach unaccompanied cello suite and upped my dose. And um, I had this experience of watching my sense of self. This is going to sound weird. It's very hard to describe this. Um, essentially dissolve. Um, A a person recognizable as me had exploded into a cloud of blue post-it notes and then fell to the ground and and puddled in a blue paint. And that was me. And I was watching it from this new perspective, and I was fine with it. I was like, wow, there goes my ego. And this feels fine. It was okay. It was okay. And, And then something really weird happened, which is I merged with this piece of music. There was no longer a subject listening to an object. It was just, I was one with this piece of music. It was the most powerful experience of music I'd ever had. And it was beautiful. I don't know what it meant. Um, it left me with a, a, an understanding that I'm not identical to my ego, you know, which is very useful because we have this critical voice in our heads chattering at us all the time. And I realized that, oh, that's just one voice. There are others. I don't have to listen to it. Yeah, that's like And that's it. been a useful life lesson okay we're talking about this is your mind on plants it's a brand new a paperback edition of the original hardback it's out next week you can pre-order it now michael pollen is who we're talking to talking about opium caffeine and mescaline tasting music who doesn't want to taste music yeah 
it's it's um I, I you just your mind is capable of some incredible things that we're not aware of in everyday life. Yeah, but that's not the mind in the head. That's the whole body mind, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's not just the head. It's it's. You're right. I mean, it's a very physical, very somatic experience as yeah, in well. Fact, it's mostly that, isn't it? It's when you let your mind, you, you introduce your heart or reintroduce your your mind to your heart and to to everything else that goes on. In many ways, psychedelic experience resembles meditation as to what's going on in the brain. Yeah, the, the invitation, sa- they call it, don't they? The, pr- the same brain networks are quieted, and those are the brain networks where your ego is talking to you and, and driving you crazy. All right. Um, so it, it's very interesting to have relief from that mind okay. for a while. So from the not-so-problematic and sort of ubiquitous world of caffeine and the upper, let's talk about um, the downer. So opium, opiates, opioids. Can you take us through that, please? Yeah. So um, opiates have been with humans for 5,000 years. They're one of the most important drugs in the pharmacopoeia. For most of the history of medicine, of course, you couldn't cure anything. All you could do was help people with pain. And opiates were the way it was done. Opiates, as evil as they are now depicted, are also a great blessing. And it's very hard for us to hold these contradictory ideas in our head. Opiates make surgery bearable. They make the passage out of this life bearable. Um, at the same time, they're highly addictive and they destroy lives. Uh, in, in the U.S., we had over 100,000 deaths by opiate overdose last year, okay? More than traffic accidents. It's, it's a scourge. But I think people need to understand, too, that banning the drug is not where the problem has occurred, that most of the people that have trouble with opiates in the U.S. get their first uh, introduction through prescriptions. Um, The biggest public health problem tied to the drug war, which is to say the opiate epidemic, was the result of the legal marketing of opiates by companies like uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, um, which knew they were addictive, um, and this has been proven in court, but nevertheless continued to market them aggressively as a safer opiate to doctors. Uh, And millions of Americans were were hooked on legal opiates that they got from their doctors, and when their doctors cut them off is when they went to the street. To me, it's a parable of the drug war and what a disaster it's been. But it's the the opposite pole, isn't it? Um, So the commerciality of these drugs now are the opposite of what happened in 1967, 1968, 1970, when they closed what you... Because you said, you know, it's revelatory what Johns Hopkins are... Uh, discovering King's College here, discovering about the use of psychedelics and um, uh, psychoactive drugs, the usefulness, genuine, sincere usefulness to to all humankind and human suffering. Uh, but that was still evident in the late 60s, which is why Nixon and his government had to close it down. And there's this extraordinary quote, isn't there, from somebody who used to work with Sean Nixon. John Ehrlichman, can yeah. You, can you remember that? Sure. So um, the drug war was started by President Nixon, uh, the modern drug war. In uh, 1970, he passes legislation that uh, makes psychedelics illegal and a whole bunch of other things, cannabis as well. And um, it was presented as a public health thing. This was going to protect America's youth. But um, Nixon was saying something very different privately. And one of his aides, his domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, subsequently gave an interview in which he said, this is what the drug war was about. Our big enemies were the hippies and the blacks. And we thought if we could make marijuana and psychedelics illegal, we would have a powerful tool to disrupt those communities. 
So the drug war started with politics, not public health. And I think it's really important to remember that. So they had to attach something that could be criminalized because they couldn't criminalize a culture or, or a demographic. No, you can't criminalize being black. But if you criminalize uh, cannabis, uh, you can go into a black community and chances are you'll find some cannabis in someone's car yeah. uh, or in their home. And there's and your label. And you suddenly have this tool, you can demonize them and you can arrest them. Uh, and the, the guy who said this, he quoted this, was then after, afterwards said in the same conversation, we completely made it up. Yeah, he said that, that this is what the drug war was about. Um, so it was a, it was unusual confession of uh, what their motives were. And of course, the whole world now had to start conforming to these U.S. drug laws through these U.N. treaties, which are still in effect. But there's signs that the drug war is losing its grip, at least in America. And um, we have uh, several states have begun to legalize drugs on their own. Psilocybin will be legally available in Oregon next year, yeah. which is kind of extraordinary. Uh, not, you know, over the counter like cannabis, but it'll be guided experiences with, with guides that are licensed by the government and growers of mushrooms licensed by the government. Uh, in fact, Oregon has, is legalizing all drugs. Um, so we'll see how those experiments go. It's, you know, I, I don't support outright legalization of all drugs. I think that we have to make distinctions. Some drugs are, are more dangerous than others. Some need to be carefully regulated. I don't think psychedelics should be available as cannabis is, because I think that if you're going to take a big dose of a psychedelic, you need somebody to be with you, um, and you need to kind of follow some rules. Well, it's, it's like getting on a holiday, you know, getting on a plane to go on holiday. You know, you need somebody else to fly the damn thing. <laughs> tell you, it's not dissimilar. You do. I mean, it, it's absolutely true. It's a very consequential act. I, I never approach a psychedelic in a casual way. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to write about the Native American church uh, and mescaline. Let's you get know. on to mescaline now. Yeah. So let's officially finish. Anything else you want to say about opium before we move on to mescaline? No, except that um, in my chapter on opium, I, I talk a lot about my own experience growing opium in my garden. It's a very easy plant to grow and a gorgeous uh, flower. Um, many people in your audience have it in their gardens and have no idea they're growing an illicit drug, which is how it should be, because as soon as you know you're growing an illicit drug, you're breaking the law. Yeah, the poppies, I mean, you know, we run on Saturdays and we run through poppy fields and they are so beautiful, it's ridiculous. They are, they are breath, a poppy's breathtakingly beautiful because it's so vibrant, it's so alive, it's so fragile, yet it's so robust in the wind. Yeah. You think it's going to fall apart and it just doesn't fall apart. And then the heads, the seed heads yeah. are so pretty. It's like sculpture, you said. Yeah, it is. Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> How's your poppy tea recipe? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you share it with us later? <laughs> you know, it's very easy to make your own poppy tea, which is a very mild narcotic yeah. It's, it's useful if you is have it, a bad back. Is that back. legal or not? It's not legal. Okay. okay. Uh, important to understand. Oh, it's okay. a serious crime. Okay. I had no idea I was doing this thing, making this thing, and that, <laughs> that the laws that could have taken away my house, thrown me in jail. I had a very close brush with the drug war back, uh, and I tell that story in the book. Yeah. So mescaline, one of the reasons I wanted to look at mescaline, which is a, a psychedelic that has been sort of displaced by LSD, which is much more easily available. Before you, Sorry, just briefly, a, a, a psychedelic isn't necessarily a hallucinogenic. 
No, psychedelics, uh, the word means mind manifesting. Right. Okay. It's actually a 50s word. We, it sounds to us like a 60s word. Is but it a Huxley word? Uh, you know, Huxley, in conversation with uh, a psychiatrist who he was working with when he tried his own, but it, what, he didn't come up with the word. It was a dialogue he was in with. This. Psychedelic means, you know, a delicacy of the psyche, one would imagine, doesn't well, it? Well, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, psyche means mind, and yeah. delic means manifesting. Okay, so it, it. it basically takes the unconscious contents of your mind and brings them into a observable space. Okay, so, um, so why mescaline? The first of all, let's start off with why mescaline. Mescaline was one of the first psychedelics discovered. It's been used in the Americas for as much as 6,000 years by Native Americans. Uh, it, it's produced by the peyote cactus, which grows in Texas and Mexico. And also another cactus that's much easier to grow called San Pedro uh, produces mescaline. That's from Bolivia and Peru. Um, Native Americans have been using um, peyote in their in their ceremonies, their healing ceremonies, uh, for for years and years and years, and they I think have a lot to teach us about the safe use of psychedelics. Um, they don't use them casually. They only use them with a sense of occasion. There's a reason for it. They're trying to heal somebody. They're they're having a rite of passage. Someone's going off to war or getting married. Um, it's a very kind of rigidly prescribed ceremony that takes place in a teepee. Um, there's always a lot of ritual. And I think most important, there's always a kind of um, leader, somebody who knows the territory, who, who is there to supervise the whole thing. It's not a party by any means. No, I know. Um, you say that you say that um, a lot of people in the world go to church to talk about God, um, but Native Indians go into their tents to talk to God. Yeah, which is one of the reasons that these powerful psychedelics have been so hated in the West. They were a real challenge to Christianity. I mean, we have this sacrament where we, you know, take of the, the you know the bread and the wine, and we think about a connection to God. Well, these indigenous Americans have a sacrament that they consume it too, but they actually meet God. Um, arguably, it's a stronger sacrament. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't depend on faith. Um, and that's one of the reasons the conquistadors crushed uh, the mushroom cults and the peyote cults they found when they came to the Americas. Uh, amazing. So um, you took Aldous Huxley's lead um, because you did some research. You asked a lot of people who you know and people you don't know, but you you knew know about these things. What is the ultimate drug? And they said masculine. And then you, you said, how come? And they told you why. And you can you can explain uh, to, to that to that now, but then you couldn't find any. You think, hang on, if this is so great, what, why has it disappeared? Yeah, it's kind of a mystery. I was surprised at how many uh, people told me that it was their favorite psychedelic. This is people with a lot more experience than me. I think basically because you need more of the substance uh, than LSD. LSD is the dose for LSD is measured in micrograms. Okay, that's millionths of a gram. Whereas you need about four to 500 milligrams of mescaline to get the same effect. Uh, and, you know, when a drug is illicit, smallness and lightness matters a lot. It's yeah. one of the reasons cannabis got so, so much stronger in the last few years is you wanted to shrink the amount of stuff you were smuggling or growing or whatever. So, so that's one reason. The other reason is the mescaline experience can last 14 hours. It's a very generous substance, um, but that might be more than a lot of people want. Um, and you can't get off the bus. You can't get off the bus. Um, I was done with mescaline before mescaline was done with me in my own experience. Yeah, and um, what, what's this about travel sickness afterwards? 
no, no issue. I had no after effects from it. Um, I didn't have any travel sickness. Um, I, I found it a very interesting experience. I did do it once uh, so I could write about it. And there's, a, there's an account in the book of it. It's very different than other psychedelics. It doesn't take you to another realm. It immerses you more deeply in the realm you're in. I was able to kind of stare at a bowl of apricots for a couple hours and see lots of very interesting things. Um, you don't hallucinate for the most part. It's very meditative. Um, it's uh, it was a it was a fascinating experience in a lot of ways, and it was actually kind of a nice drug for the pandemic because because no, you're stuck at home. It's claustrophobic, and you you haven't gone anywhere and. Um, I think, you know, I think it's that was a good time to use a psychedelic. So for people just dropping into to hearing this conversation now and you talking about LSD and us discussing all these things, which may sound irresponsible, can you bring some responsibility back to the conversation? Yeah. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, these are – it's not anything to be done lightly. Um, you need a very good reason to use a psychedelic and you should probably, if you're going to use a big dose, have somebody with you who's not on a psychedelic. But is it legal? I don't... It's completely illegal. You are... Oh, so you can't you, do it? So you can't do it? The only way you can do it is in a university trial. Right. Um, and you could, you know, see what's going on at Imperial College and where they're doing a lot of really interesting research. Right. So it could well become legal. It's not illegal It's starting there. to become... It, it's very close to be... Psilocybin is only a couple years from being approved by both the EMA and the uh, FDA okay. in the U.S. Right, um, okay. And the, you, you say write it. Sorry, so we're, we're almost pushed for time. We are pushed for time. We're almost uh, done for time. So you say that writing about this now and books like yours will be perceived in the future as very similar to how people wrote about food 20 years ago. Yeah, I think ideas that seem very fringy will are becoming mainstream very quickly. the The whole conversation around psychedelics has shifted in the last five years in ways I never would have imagined. Okay, and do you think anybody's hobnail boot could stamp stamp the usefulness, the good side of this out? This I think time? if if people are really stupid and use these drugs in dangerous ways and and bad things happen, yeah, there could be a backlash. We had one in the '60s, and it could happen again, and that and that's why I think people need to approach it with some care and a sense of responsibility. And for people, uh, I always think this. I always thought this until I've heard you talking about it because I now know the answer. You know, um, one of the most destru destructive drugs in the world is alcohol, and it's legal mostly everywhere. Um, how come that's not illegal? How come how come prohibition didn't work? And you know. Um, just speak to that for a second. Yeah. So um, alcohol does a lot more damage than psychedelics. Uh, it is addictive. Psychedelics are not addictive, believe it or not. I was very surprised to learn that. Did They're you know not habit-forming. There's no toxic dose of LSD or psilocybin, and there is a toxic dose of many drugs you buy over the counter, um, things like acetaminophen, uh, you know. The dangers to psychedelics are psychological. Some people who are delicate or, or at risk of uh, schizophrenia, for example, can be set off. Extremely and serious risk. Extremely serious risk. Okay. And, um, and that has to be kept in mind also. Alcohol, uh, you know, it, it didn't succeed because it was already woven into our culture. Yeah. You know, going back to the very first point, we are wired 
to like to change consciousness. The challenge is finding ways to do it that are safe um, and and doing it in a responsible way. So you have one prediction to leave us with for the future. Yeah, in five years, psychedelics will be part of mental health care in this country and in the United States, without question. What are you up to next, Michael Pollan? Uh, I'm working on a book about consciousness. Um, <laughs> one of the things that psychedelics reliably do is make you ask questions about what is this thing? What is this thing? Our awareness. Why are we aware? Why isn't this all hardwired? Yeah, and why are we not aware enough sometimes? And why do we yeah. label everything? And if we because la- if you label something, it blinds you to everything else that surrounds the thing you've labeled. Yeah, and uh, so uh, you know those very simple questions, things we take for granted in life. That's what I'm fascinated by. So I'm I'm looking into the science of consciousness. Okay, mate. It's great to meet you, Michael. Great pleasure, Chris. Awesome, Thank awesome. you for having me on. You're very welcome. This is your mind and plants. It's available uh, next week. Pre-order it now. You can get a hardback online. Opium, caffeine, and mescaline by Michael Pollan. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky Virgin Radio. That was Michael Pollan, and that's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. Why not listen back to some of our other podcasts from the likes of Pat Monahan, Lisa Billu, or even my mate Russell Brand. Off you pop, then. Ta-ra. Or shall I say? Ta-da! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.